came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta and Gaibal country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 15th of October. We always include a community service announcement, asking you to wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Today we bring you the promised part two of our interview with amazing Fulbright scholar and accomplished planet hunter Jake Clark. Since Jake's August interview, he has moved to California to continue his PhD research with Dr. Natalie Hinkle of Hypatia Catalogue fame. Now, since it's well over a month since I did the interview with Jake, I got in touch with him in San Antonio and asked him if he could give us an update. So just before we hear part two of his interview, here is a short audio file he sent me. I was talking in the first part about getting all prepped up, ready to rock and roll, to go over to America, and here I am. Uh, It's been a massive journey. I had to go from Brisbane to Adelaide via Mount Isa, Tennant Creek, and Alice Springs on a big, massive journey, which was absolutely incredible, and then went over to Melbourne, and then a 36-hour plane ride literally around the world to get to America. This is amazing. I'm literally living the dream right here, and... I just can't thank, I just want to give a massive shout out to both Dr. Natalie Hinkle, my PhD advisor, and also Dr. Caleb Wheeler, who have been looking after me for the last few weeks that have been settling into San Antonio. I think it's, you know, it can be a massive emotional uh, commitment to move over to a different country and halfway around the world, and they've been doing more than enough to make me feel at home and They're emulating exactly what I'm about to talk about in the second part of not only being amazing scientists, but also being amazing people as well and paying it forward and knowing that if you've gone through struggles and have smashed down towers and glass ceilings to get to where you've gotten to, then also making sure that those barriers are now no longer there for uh, the next people below you. So yeah, I think they're really emulating who I want to be. 
So enjoy this next part and the final part of uh, Brandon's chat with myself and be kind, be compassionate, and more importantly, share a little bit of energy. Now as a quick recap of part one, and for those who haven't heard it yet, I can recommend you have a listen to episode 132 and hear firsthand from Jake about working with NASA TESS, with Kepler, the K2 mission data, the Galar survey, and the Minerva Australis telescope array, and how he confirms exoplanet candidates. He also gives us a great summary of the transit method and the radial velocity method of exoplanet detection and a fantastic explanation of how machine learning works using a Netflix analogy. Go back and have a listen. And now we continue with our interview with Jake. Okay. Let's look at some of your publications now. I had a look on the archive server and found a lot of your work and some of your first author papers are there and a lot that you've also collaborated on and you've been amazingly busy. In one of your first author papers last year, you mentioned you looked at 47,000 stars from Galar, Tess and Gaia and you found that over a third of those stars could host rocky earth-like planets did i get that right now that's... yeah 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 you did that was good that was great mate <laughs> that's a lot of friendly systems so could you talk us through some details of this particular paper or maybe some other part of your research that you're working on that's driving you crazy or is astonishingly exciting or perhaps even both oh man I guess I, I'll answer three questions there. I'll jot them down. Here we go. All right. So, so that was my first author paper. And so that's been a big, massive chunk of my research as a PhD student, Brendan. And as you probably saw, I've been pretty lucky and pretty busy with, with other amazing research. I think I've helped discover over 10 planets, which is, <laughs> yeah. And so I think I've helped to collaborate on almost 20 papers during my PhD, which is phenomenal and very lucky to be in that sort of position. But for my first first author paper, it was, uh, I guess, as I just mentioned, you know, combining the likes of Gaia and Heth uh, and the likes of Galar as well to create a massive comprehensive catalog that will hopefully be used by other astronomers to help characterize the planets that they'll likely find around those stars. And so we looked at the as I mentioned, you can look at the fingerprints of stars and look at what's known as the chemical abundances of stars. And so you can work out, well, what's the abundance of iron within this star? Or what's the abundance of silicon or magnesium or gold or whatever, <laughs> like whatever element floats your boat, you can find a part of the light spectrum that will give you, that will give you that answer. I guess some answers are straight, more straightforward than, than others. And what research shows us is that uh, we can look at abundance ratios. So you're looking at the ratio of how much iron there is in that star compared to silicon or how much magnesium there is to silicon or, or these types of things. And those ratios can actually help determine what types of rocky worlds 
will likely orbit these stars. I mean, this is all sort of forward prediction work and we're not too sure, but I guess that's the best thing about predictions is that someone else will go off and prove me wrong, I guess. And what we were able to look at is we look at the iron to silicon ratios and that will tell us what the ratio of what the... So just moving backwards a little bit, rocky planets are made out of so two big... Uh, layers we have the mantle and the core and i guess you can think about the surface but in terms of i guess those sheer the sheer size of the mantle and the core compared to the surface or the crust you don't want to uh, you can sort of mitigate them and so the iron to silicon ratio will tell you how big the core of those planets would be relative to the size of the mantle or the sorry the mass of the mantle so that's that will give you the mass ratio i should say and how much of the mass will be in the core with an iron core and how much of it, how much of it would be in that mantle. And then the magnesium to silicon ratios will tell you the composition of, of the mantle and whether the mantle will be magnesium rich, which is what our, even though silica makes up a lot of silicates make up a huge chunk of our planets. So there's two sort of regimes here you've got to think about. You think about the magnesium to silicon ratio, that's sort of greater than one. That's the sort of, solar system like or sorry the sort of worlds that we see in sort of venus earth and mars mercury is actually a little bit different but i'll talk about that in a second and then there are silicon rich environments where you have interesting alien exotic compositions and that's for your magnesium to silicon ratio that's less than one so you know you have more silicon atoms than you will to magnesium ratios and then there's another ratio that you have to consider, which is the carbon to oxygen ratio. So how many carbon atoms are there to oxygen atoms within that star? And that will actually tell you if worlds are going to be based on sort of silicon or magnesium, or they'll be likely to be carbon-based. And so if your carbon to oxygen ratio is greater than 0.8, well, then that will tell you that the... Uh, star were likely to host some sort of exotic carbon worlds where you might have heard that you have a core that's you know solid diamond or something crazy like that and filled with carbonite so that's what my my research show, showed that a third within that was sort of within Erebus will likely host planets so the sorry a third of the stars in the 47,000 will likely host planets that are comparable in composition to those found within our solar system. So the likes of Venus, Mars, and Earth, and the rest of them will be all sorts of exotic compositions. And I think, you know, you can sort of look, you can look at tectonics, I guess, to one degree, but as we've seen within our own solar system, the rocky worlds, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars are all incredibly different and incredibly diverse. So I guess it's just sort of one tick in the box in terms of, I guess, in bunny bunny quotations, Earth-like worlds, just because something is geologically comparable to Earth, you know, its surface temperature might be 2000 degrees, which uh, might not be the best for, for life on the surface, or it could be, you know, minus 200 degrees, and so, yeah, I just, the thing is that unfortunately the media and I guess scientists to a point, they want to beef up their science and the importance of their science, which is important in terms of getting grants and getting funding. And I do understand that, but 
you know, there have been a lot of articles in popular science outlets where they'll say, oh, we've just discovered an Earth-like planet. And and with the 4,500 worlds that we have discovered so far, not one of them is like, like the Earth. Yep. And so geology might be one thing, but we need to work out what its atmosphere might be comprised of. And you can actually determine that to a certain extent with the composition. But as I get, you sort of guess working off those ratios and you want to work out, well, if the planet has a, has a magnetosphere or, you know, has a magnetic dynamo that can protect the surface from harmful radiation and you know venus is the most earth-like planet that we know of it's very similar in size and mass of the earth and as you know brendan it's very very different and you know mercury is sort of this outlier of the examples that were also the the framework that we're working in because mercury's core is i think makes up about two-thirds of its mass and we believe that it there's a couple of scenarios that might have been a bigger gaseous world and what's left over is the remnant core of that planet or there may have been i think the more likely scenario would have been a, a secondary collision that sort of stripped its mantle away and hence why most of its mass is within the core of mercury and so with my research we didn't find any stars that would likely host planets similar to mercury which i guess also sort of solidifies that planets like mercury in terms of their composition are more likely to form from secondary processes than there are to form in primary processes. Unbelievable. And all that is from light that's been traveling for millions of years, billions of years. Amazing. I guess most of it's sort of tens or hundreds of light years, but that's so like, that's what gets me, Brendan. And like, even with tests, like it, it might observe a, a dip in the dip in the starlight tonight. But say, for example, that star, that star's 30 light years away, that dip, that planet orbited that star 30 years ago, and we're only just seeing that light. And so we're seeing that planet as it was in 1991, or I guess, you know, 30 odd years ago, I was still baking in the womb right now. I was ready to, <laughs> ready to see the world. So it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. It certainly is. Tess, though, is beautiful. Is there another data release coming soon from TESS or does that light curve data come down continuously? You were saying there's those 13 sectors. Do you go and just grab sector by sector data? Yeah, so it's definitely more of the latter, Brennan. So we get sort of a data drop every month or so. So we know what sectors are being observed and when. And so then therefore, you know what stars are being observed in that sector and there's a really couple of cool websites i can send through to you later to pop on the podcast so if people are interested in it and you can type in your favorite star it'll tell you if the test is observing it and what sector and it'll tell you roughly what time it's observed and there's roughly about a two to three month delay in terms of from it being observed to being able to get access to the data which i think is pretty cool considering all the human power involved in actually getting that done and uh, yeah, so I think we're almost up to sector 42 or something like that now. So it's been about 42 months or so since Tess has been observing the night sky and it's just, it's phenomenal. So, and anyone can actually get access to the light curves if you want to have a play with them. And as we mentioned right at the start, I think that's what's great about the, the community and the astro community here is that in most cases, all the data is just publicly available. So if 
you've been studying or in your free time and think, all right, I want to know how to analyze light curves or you can go off and grab the data and have a play with it and discover your planet right now. Like it doesn't need sophisticated, I mean, it needs sophisticated equipment in terms of the spacecraft cost hundreds of millions of dollars to, to get up there and deploy and all the rest of it. But the data is freely available for anyone that if they want to have a crack at discovering a planet, then go forth. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's a great segue because I was going to ask you about citizen science. You're the professional scientist, but what about those amateur and citizen scientists? Can our listeners get on board without any physics skills and help hunt down exoplanets? Like I went to the NASA website and I found they've got an exoplanet website where they've got six planet hunting citizen science projects. Uh, would you recommend such projects for listeners? 110%, Brendan, 110%. If that is something that you're interested in doing, um, this is what's great about the world that we currently live in now is that the ivory towers that once stood the scientific community up in, in the rafters and you know, looking down and be like, oh, you know, look at these surfs down here uh, being dismantled one brick at a time. And I'm just grateful that I'm one of those scientists with those sledgehammers that are trying to make it happen. And I think there's such a great connection now that scientists can have with the community and, and vice versa, which has all sorts of great advantages in terms of uh, STEM engagement and STEM participation and more importantly, STEM literacy. I mean, we, we can only just see the news headlines and the way things are going at the moment in terms of COVID and how the messages of the efficiency of the vaccines and uh, how mixed messaging can damage the reputation of, of medical science. And so I think having these amazing opportunities where anyone and everyone can get involved with science is incredibly important. I remember... There's a really great, I think it was Planet Hunters on Zooniverse. Uh, Zooniverse is a great website that has all sorts. So if you're, if planets aren't your thing, that's yeah, awesome. Zooniverse is um, you can, you can look up, you can classify galaxies or there's also like amazing wildlife and biological uh, citizen science projects there. So, and history projects as well. So it's not just aimed at STEM. There's also some really great arts, citizen science projects and, so if you just want to get involved, and I think like if you've always been, oh, you know, I've wanted to get into this sort of line of work, but never really, don't really know how to, what's involved. I think that's a really great way of actually getting your hands dirty and actually realizing what's involved with that type of science. And I remember fondly, there was a mechanic in Darwin that co discovered an exoplanet. And I mean, for a bloke that has no, He's got more experience in knowing how a, a LCXU1 runs than, a, than an exoplanet. I think that's absolutely phenomenal, man. Like it's, it's great and gives me such a great amount of energy for to break down those barriers where anyone and everyone can actually get, get involved with it. And I think scientists now, because I mean, scientists see the benefit because there's more human power involved in, in terms of classifying things and as i mentioned like we've got machine learning and artificial intelligence uh, techniques but they don't work 100 of the time there's different quirks involved involved with them and 
and there's nothing like a pair of human eyeballs to 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 classify a thing so i think it's a great way it's a great advantage for it's like a win-win situation for everyone involved and yeah i think if anyone's been abstaining from getting involved with science or a little bit scared and i think unfortunately the society and the education system that we're in disadvantages people in the sense that science can be and mathematics can be incredibly daunting and i wish there was more that could be done in in education and engagement to show that it's not as big and as as scary as what most people think and i think you know sort of uh citizen science is sort of i guess more or less a gateway drug into doing some feathering on on in some more stem education very good and for any listeners that are currently under lockdown just go to nasa exoplanets or just go to zooniverse there's something for everyone now what about yourself jake you're up to your elbows with exoplanet hunting and finalizing your phd but you've got a great side gig for your sanity you mentioned earlier um would you like to tell us about your mosh heavy music radio show that you've been working on it for 10 years and I went and had a look. I love the motto of your show. So grab a cup of Bonox, crank it up to 11 and listen to Mosh. <laughs> Tell us about Mosh, Jake, and your work on the show and how listeners can tune in. Yeah, definitely, Brendan. I remember, I think it was end of first year uh, in my undergrad, I saw an ad, as most undergrads do, you sort of, I wouldn't say stumbling down the, block of the uni bar but you know yeah you're, you're watching your step and i remember seeing an ad being like you you want your own radio show if you do you know grab the little stub and apply and i'm thinking oh wow that'd be amazing and radio adelaide was then owned by uh, the university of adelaide and they had student radio and you could just pitch a show and i said to myself oh well you know i'd really love heavy music and I love yakking as most listeners can now tell. So why not sort of bring that together? And so I pitched a show that promoted local heavy music. And I guess, you know, the umbrella for that is sort of metal, punk and hardcore. And I guess any, everything and anything in between. And I didn't even think anything of it. And I got a phone call. I think I was in my grandfather's car actually. And they're like, oh, you're ready for your interview tomorrow. I'm like, oh, interview for what? <laughs> and they said, oh, for the student radio gig. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, 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 I'm all, I'm all set. A bluff. That was a massive bluff, but it paid off. <laughs> so get in there uh, the day after and had the interview and I got in. So it started off as uh, Midnight Static, which is part of the student radio. And I said to myself, well, if I can interview, there's still a local band in Adelaide called Arcadia. If I get to interview them, I think I'd, that, that's that's the goal. And I think that'd be great. And then it just snowballed, Brendan. I mean, I remember, I think the first big interview I did was a band called Devil Driver, which had been around for, for eons. And I've been super, super lucky that it's been going on now for, for 10 years. And I've sort of been on and off it because of study, but I'm back on the horse now. And I've had the awesome opportunity to interview the likes of Deep Purple and Slayer and interview sort of younger bands like Parkway Drive and A Day to Remember and Amity Fiction and just been talking to bands at the moment I think like Kill Switch Engage and Water Parks and I've got an interview this week with a sort of progressive metal band called Tesseract and 
it's so good. And I think it's just, I guess my sense of community sort of started there as well. And my love to sort of give a voice to people that don't have it. And we've been very fortunate to be able to promote local bands. And now the show is sort of the go-to apparently for bands to, or for people to go find their local band to play. Cause we do a little gig guide each and every week, which is, which is fantastic. And being able to give back to the community. I mean, we're living in Toowoomba at the moment, so we sort of do it remotely. But unfortunately, as you know, people are in lockdown and last week all of Adelaide was in lockdown. And so I said to my mate, all right, well, let's play all the bands that weren't going to have, well, we're going to play a gig this weekend, but unfortunately didn't. And we just got a lot of, a lot of great feedback from it being like, you know, this is, this means a lot. And I think, yeah, just giving that voice. I mean, it's great to interview those big bands, but it's also great to give a, a voice to the local community. And I mean, also learned a lot, a few shows also a couple of shows before me i at the time i didn't when i first started i didn't own a car so to get a taxi at one o'clock in the morning to get home and um a couple of shows before me was uh the indigenous show nungawanga and uh stevie goldsmith he ran that show and he was a huge mentor for for me and really opened up my eyes and for uh indigenous culture and an indigenous astronomy and uh, I've been super fortunate to learn more about that in, in, in my life now. And, you know, if it wasn't for those types of moments, I definitely wouldn't be the person I am today. So, and it's still kicking along. It's still going strong. I'm still doing the show with, with Nick and you can, you can listen live every Tuesday night on Radio Adelaide. I mean, Radio Adelaide's got a website, radioadelaide.org.au on uh, I think 10 o'clock uh, Adelaide time. And, it's just, it's a really great outlet. As you said, like sometimes you can just get in the grind of, of uni and there's no sort of creative outlet and it gives me a really great creative outlet. And I've, yeah, just started paint, going back to painting and using pastels again and just using another side of my brain. And it's, it's great. It's great. It's a, I mean, it's great to do some coding and discover worlds, but it's also great to sort of live on planet earth while you still got the time, you know? Fantastic. Yeah, art and science aren't so disparate. Okay, that's a great gig in the sky you've got there, if I can mix my metaphors. Now, you also do great science outreach since way before your circus days, and I just watched some of your astronomy presentations on YouTube, and they're fantastic. Can you tell us about that passion for outreach? What's coming up next for you? And why is it so important for you? I think to answer your question about why it's so important for me is that, as I mentioned earlier, I had no role models in my life who, you know, were a scientist or even finished high school. And so to be able to have that sort of alternative voice of, well, you've come from a, if you're from a low socioeconomic area or you're from a regional town or, you know, whether or not you're from a different background, that's from the norm of being from a privileged white picket fence background, you can achieve your dreams. And it, it is a harder road. It is a harder path, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's not achievable. And so for me and my outreach, the sort of science is secondary the first and foremost part of my outreach is whether it's engaging and whether people are having fun. Cool. When people are 
having fun, you're learning without even realizing it. And yeah. we've all sort of had a teacher where you've gone back and thought, well, that was a really great time. And actually I learned something from it. And I guess, you know, for me, it's, it's about having that outlet and expression of showing to unrepresented minorities that you can achieve your dreams. And I, as I mentioned, was super fortunate to go around to local uh, unrepresented schools. And I went to one school that was only had 14 kids in it. And that was a really special time. I was in Bowenville, just out part, oh, almost near Dolby in regional Queensland. And I was doing surveys at the time in terms of like how long has it been since you've had a scientist at your school or how long have you had a, how long has it been since you've had an outreach activity like this? And for that school, it's been more than five years since a scientist was at that school yep. and more than two years since they had an outreach opportunity like that. So, I mean, for, for kids like that, you can't be what you can't see. Yep. And for kids to now see at that school, I mean, even if they are 14 kids, for them to be like, well, you know what, I can actually be a scientist. That is actually an achievable goal for me. And, you know, whether or not they went back home, I, rem- I think when I went there on the billboard, they had, we won the Royal Show's Best Pumpkin Award. And so there must be some, must be some great biologists and green thumbs in there to be able to win that. So, you know, it, it just gives you, gives you options for for your life moving forward and i just want to show the people that science can be fun science can be engaging and science i mean i'm not trying to show that everyone needs to be a scientist because not not everyone needs a scientist you know i, I still want to try and get a job <laughs> the yeah. job market i don't want the job market to be that saturated but you know that it can be it can be an option to you and you know if you make things fun and you can be on the same level of of students you can build up a sense of trust and i think that's incredibly important in the world that we now live in brendan in terms of miscommunication and i remember having a an intimate and i guess fired conversation with my best mate back home who didn't finish high school he's a fitter and turner and he's saying to me i or i said to him oh i've got the jab i'm all fired up and he's like oh well i'm not getting it i'm like oh like why not and so for me it wasn't a matter of oh well you know you're an idiot because i mean by calling people's people names brendan you're not going to get through to people and so i'm like well you know what like you got yourself a family mate and you know and i just more or less gave him the lowdown and spoke to him like a like an actual human being and showed him empathy and compassion and he's like we actually you know what like uh, i think you are right like maybe i should actually I should actually look into it. So I don't know whether he has yet or not, but at least now that's that's an option to him. And I think it's just it's it's a life the sort of art of debate is has been lost. And I think if a lot of us approached these sort of heated environments with more kindness and compassion and empathy for how people have come to make up those conclusions or how to how do people have made up their minds and sort of the environment the circumstances that they've been in in order to have that opinion whether it's right or wrong then you can work out a way to try and to try and win them over but you know name calling and and shunning people isn't going to do that so i guess in terms of my my outreach and the way that i I have a general outlook on things is just show kindness compassion 
give people fun and show that things are exciting and that to try and give that sort of level of trust to scientists because I mean it gets eroded so much and I mean like as scientists do have a role to play in that but I think a lot of that's on as well the political and media landscape that we that we live in as well so it's a matter of me trying to break down those ivory towers and glass ceilings and try and bring as many people as I can along the way. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. A passion in your voice speaks volumes, Jake. Now, well, hopefully he has had the job. Um, okay, Jake, well, good luck for the rest of your work. It sounds like you've got a great research trajectory heading off to do some more interesting work. And meanwhile, uh, you've got those teams up at USQ and up on Mount Kent. Let's briefly mention now the current COVID crisis since you brought it up. How has that impacted on your studies and your research? You're in Queensland. Are you in lockdown right now? No, which is a pretty contentious issue. I mean, Toowoomba, just to give you the lowdown, Toowoomba is about 120-odd kilometres west of Brisbane, and we are just on the outskirts of of the whole lockdown and and the lockdown is a week long now and Toowoomba we got 120,000 people and it's very sort of scary to think that you know it only takes one case Brendan and 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 that's it so it is a pretty contentious issue up here but we're not we're not in lockdown at the moment but it has it has affected our work I mean we're very fortunate with Minerva Australis which is up on the Mount Ken Observatory. It's a facility that the only facility in South in the Southern Hemisphere dedicated to the test mission. That all of the telescopes that we have, all five of them, are controlled robotically and are controlled sort of semi-autonomously. I would call it sort of semi-terminator mode. And <laughs> so we can do most of our work from home, but there's also some disadvantages in terms of surveys being delayed and not being able to get access to the data. And for me, I wasn't able to get access to my computer at work. And so a lot of my work was there. And so this bunch of going backwards and forwards in terms of how I can replicate what I was doing from work to home. But I feel like us astronomers were, because a lot of us is remote or, you know, with the test space telescope, if it's in space, I guess COVID is not really a thing it needs to worry about. Um, but a lot of this stuff comes out from America. And as we know, America has had a really bad time with, with COVID. So there were delays, but you, you got to roll with those, with those punches. And I think our community was, was extremely fortunate. I share my office with some amazing scientists outside of astronomy. And there's a few amazing scientists who work in biology. And unfortunately their experiments went off and they weren't allowed to go into the labs. And unfortunately for those ladies, you know, there was a huge chunk of time that they couldn't do anything. And, you know, the PhD clock is still ticking along. And so, yeah, they're just running around like, I wouldn't say headless chooks because they're pretty, their heads are firmly, firmly planted here and uh, got pretty level headed in, in that regard. But, you know, there, there was a, there is a level of stress around and especially with funding and, some some funding agencies require things by a certain deadline and you can't meet that deadline because of because of covid and yeah i mean i was supposed to go to america 
this time last year, but it probably wasn't the best time to go. No. So you just have to just massage your plans, your plans around. And I think I've learned, I mean, I'm a pretty anxious human. I'm more than happy to talk publicly about my mental health and being a mental health advocate, but you know, you get, you have to worry about the things that you can control and sort of let go of the things that you, that you can't, which is, I guess, easier said than done. But um, yeah, you just, it is what it is. Amen. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jake. A great observation about the situation for COVID slash research. Now, the mic's all yours now, and you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave. I'm sure you've got one about just one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity, and diversity or in science denialism or career paths or your own passion for research or perhaps even the human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours, Jake. Well, I guess there's there's two points I want to raise. And I guess one is, well, actually, probably three. Uh, one is diversity in, in, in uh, astronomy and in STEM and diversity with all different communities and I guess another one is funding and and lack of positions and I guess the next one is sort of a spirituality that I have and the connection that I have with with the cosmos but I guess the first one with with diversity things aren't things still need a lot of improvement on, on on that front there was a great paper that came out this year in terms of Australian astronomers and the pathway forward to get a 50-50 split in terms of females and males into into astronomy. And on our current trajectory, we won't have a 50-50 split beyond, I think, 2070 or something absurd like that. And even with the best case scenario, you won't get a 50-50 split until I think it was 2040 or something outrageous like that. And I mean, for me from observing what I've seen, it's great to have amazing programs that get more women and, and girls into, into STEM and having a career pathway like that and having great, having great role models. I've seen that you've have uh, Catherine Ross on, on the show before. And I just have a lot of, a lot of love for, for that amazing human being and what she is doing on on that front and the uh, and the include her campaign that she's running yep and you know in terms of other diversities like unrepresented minorities in terms of indigenous people and uh, yeah first nations people and um people from regional areas and people from low socioeconomic areas and people of color like there's still just a lot a lot of work that needs to be done on that front and you can do all of this in, in parallel if people are more than willing willing to do it. And I guess there's another area there in terms of sustainability. Um, us astronomers use 40% more energy than than the average Australian. So we're working on ways to reduce our our carbon emissions there here in Australia. And that's a I'm a part of the Astronomical Society of Australia's uh, sustainability working group on that one to try and bring, bring that down. Yeah. And the second point I raised was about I guess the job market and funding and and got to be honest with you, man, it's, 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 it's not great. It, there's a, about a 10% success rate for, 
for grants here in Australia to, to get jobs and to keep your job. And I mean, for, I know senior professors that are in their mid forties that are still on rolling contracts, they don't have permanent jobs. Yep. And, you know, these people are at the top of their game and it's an ultra competitive field. It's a bit like, I mean, I guess the great example here is currently the Olympics. You are up against the best of the best and the, you've got the cream of the crop all fighting for the gold medal, which is just, you know, one job. And you have all these people training to, to get to that point. And I mean, that's where you have lobbyists and, more scientists in political circles to actually show the advantages of, of science and especially with blue collar science. I mean, for every dollar that the American taxpayer puts into NASA, NASA pumps out, I think between seven to $15, which I think is a pretty good investment with what they actually get, get done with that money. Yep. And um, similarly with, with research that's done here, the, the, the investment that you put in the, the Australian taxpayers and what they put in to fund uh, research and even just blue sky research like I do with, with no real tangible outcome has significant economic benefits. Um, it may, might not be straight away, but you do see that. And it's, it's a no brainer to, to, to fund funding here in Australia. And there's, you know, the brain drain where you have people that go overseas because there's no, there's no jobs here in Australia. And it's, it is, it is a little bit scary and, I guess the final point that I want to make is most astronomers, including myself, just have this innate connection with, with the world and, and with the universe. And I am super duper grateful to be in the combination of atoms that I'm in right now. I mean, the atoms and energy that make me and you and, everyone listening in has been there since the beginning and you know it, it sometimes can be pretty daunting and you can feel kind of small with the scale of the universe and how small we can be but I sort of flip it on its head and just think that we're not a part of the universe we are the universe we are the universe experiencing itself and trying to work out how this all works and and has come to be and you know sort of have a blip on the radar of being one little cog in that cosmic will of trying to better understand better understand itself is is really really cool so yeah that's fantastic sentient stardust fantastic jake what else should we look out for in the near future what are you keeping your eye on there's so many exciting opportunities here in terms of further exoplanet telescopes and characterization. And you have the likes of uh, CHEOPS, which is a space telescope uh, that's being delivered by the European Space Agency, which will sort of be a mega test. Uh, there's also talked about tests having more brothers and sisters up in the space, which is super exciting. There's also, so, and we've, we're doing a lot of stamp collecting, I guess, in terms of collecting pl planets and sort of storing them and being like, okay, well, I guess what else do we do with them? And I guess the next step is being able to characterize them. And it's great to say that the James Webb Space Telescope will finally launch later this year. I remember when I started my undergrad uh, 10 years ago that it was going to launch any, any year now, but I'm glad, you know, it's 
now in the final stages of being launched and that will really be a game changer in terms of being able to characterize the atmospheres of exoplanets and being able to characterize the atmosphere or then especially for rocky worlds will be able to sort of funnel in with what I do in terms of working out the geological compositions of these worlds and vice versa and it is such a really exciting time to be within this field this field is about 32 33 years young and every moment I mean every day now I see more and more planets being discovered and great techniques being used and and it's just a fantastic time right now as we're recording this that in an hour's time I'll be attending the second test science conference and I remember last I mean, these are the types of conferences Brendan where the sort of big science announcements take take place and sort of you'll see news articles based around uh, things that are going to be talked about this week so I'm really really excited to see the amazing science from our community and what's been going on and even though it's all virtual, there's a great virtual environment to, to be in. And I think there's about 200 odd science posters that we're going to have to get through, including and including talks and all the rest of it. So I'm just really, really excited. And also what I mentioned at the start, the people within the community, there's great, amazing PhD students and young scientists as well. And there's never been for me, I think, especially socially as well, like, a lot of scientists are now coming in and being more aware of scientific of uh, social issues as well. And it's so great. And so I think the future is very bright in terms of social and scientific advancement and in particular, the field of exoplanetary research that I'm in. Fantastic. And at your conference, if you virtually run into Dr. Jesse Christensen, say hi from us. She gave us a, a great presentation a, a year or two ago when TESS was launched. Well, thank you so much, exoplanet hunter Jake Clark. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. You're very generous with your time. Thank you. Especially. So are you. <laughs> You've got a crazy schedule. Good luck for it. And Listeners on Twitter can follow Jake. He's at Space Jake. It's the at symbol, the word space, and then J-A-Y-K, all one word. Congratulations and good luck with nailing your doctorate and the next phase of your career as you head over to the States. And thanks, Jake. No, thank you so much, Brennan, for taking the time out for me to indulge in my research. And thank you, everyone, for listening in for the last two hours and uh, being, a, being a part of this journey. Yeah, I'm more than happy if people have any questions, whether or not it's part of my research or some other interesting things that you discover, I'm more than happy to, to be contacted. So if you find me either on Twitter or if you just Google search me, you can find my, you'll be more than likely to find my contact details and I'm more than happy to give advice or or whatever where I can thanks Jake see you later mate see you later mate have a good night and remember Astrophys is free and unsponsored and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com and for observers and astrophotographers 
always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website. And we'll see you in two weeks when Ian returns with his monthly Skywatch for observers and astrophotographers. And in the middle of next month, we'll bring you an out-of-this-world interview with Dr. Jill Tarter, who is Emeritus Chair for SETI Research at the SETI Institute. And she is amazing. Radio Wave!